So one of my favorite pastoral responsibilities is the opportunity to officiate weddings. I always, uh, I always enjoy the opportunity. It's such a neat thing to be able to be up here and be able to see the bride and the groom just, uh, just totally in, in a moment that they will probably remember for the rest of their lives. I'm just totally overwhelmed by all the emotions of the moment to be able to, uh, to play a role, to play a part in it. I always joke with them that I, I end up getting the best seat in the house during weddings because I'm right there getting to see everything on their faces, getting to read the expressions, getting to read the emotions and all of that. So it is always a great joy. And as most of you probably are well familiar with, uh, with a wedding, there's so many details, there's so many things that you, need to, uh, that you need to plan for, that you need to work through, that you need to process through. Uh, the, typically, we, we encourage wedding rehearsals. So typically, the day before, we'll gather together, we'll do a rehearsal just to make sure everything runs smoothly. Um, I have done a couple of weddings where we couldn't do the rehearsal for whatever reason, and uh, we, we always regret that. Um, rehearsals, rehearsals are a good thing. And so, and so I like to begin the rehearsal with having, with having the wedding party come up here and everyone lined up and get positioned so we make sure everyone's standing in the right place. And then, and then I look at the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and, and I remind them at that point in time that when you stand there during the ceremony, when you stand there, don't lock your knees. Don't lock your knees. And, it, you know, I've never actually seen it. So I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or not. I, I presume that there is truth to it. But supposedly, it is not uncommon when standing for a long period of time and your knees locked, it is easy to pass out. As a consequence, I've heard of it happening in other weddings where all of a sudden the best man passes out and falls on the ground. And, well, that, that, that's a little disruptive to the wedding. Although I do have to admit, because I've never seen it, I kind of want to see it happen at some point. And, and I'm, I'm, usually, I'm usually fairly honest with that during the wedding rehearsal. Okay, so my encouragement is, is none of you lock your knees. But let's be honest, it would be really entertaining if you did. So uh, bride, brides don't usually appreciate my sense of humor. It is so interesting. Um, it, it's amazing the things that, that could potentially take away your ability to stand, right? Something that seems so fundamental, something that seems so rudimentary, and yet, and yet there are so many things that could potentially take that opportunity away. On, on a slight topic shift, but very slight, we live in an interesting day. We live in an interesting day where we are hearing so many stories about deconversions. About deconversions. And what I mean when I say deconversions, I'm talking about those who have claimed the Christian faith, who have claimed to be followers of Christ, and yet for whatever reason, at a later point, have stepped away from those beliefs, have decided that they no longer believe in Christ or in the fundamentals of the Christian faith deconversion stories. And I, I don't know if it's a sign of the times. I don't know if it has something to do with our culture and the shift that we're experiencing, or maybe even if it's linked somewhat to social media and the reality that these things are just far more public now than they used to be. But for whatever reason, it does feel like it's on the rise. It does feel like we're seeing more and more of it. And so many of us are impacted by these stories. We know people, or we, we know people who have actually deconverted. 
We've felt that. We've experienced it. And these sorts of, these sorts of moments, it raises all kinds of questions for us. Why? What happened? How is that even possible? Was it, did, did they genuinely believe in the first place? These sorts of questions just naturally come up in the midst of this. Well, the passage that we're going to look at this morning addresses some of those questions. Though, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't address all of those questions. There are many questions that we are left wrestling with that Scripture doesn't spend much time addressing. Rather, Scripture takes a different focus. Scripture takes the focus pretty consistently of how we stand. How do we stand? Not so much picking up the pieces afterwards, not so much what happened in that moment, more how do we continue to stand in the midst of this? How do we stand firm? And that's what our passage addresses this morning. So today, as we look at our final passage in the book of 1 Peter, we've been able to go on this whirlwind tour of seeing Peter address the churches in Asia Minor, or what we would call modern-day Turkey. We've seen Peter address these churches describing how do you stand firm in the midst of a culture that persecutes you, in the midst of a culture where there's so much animosity towards you. What does it look like to stand firm? And so today, as we look at our final passage, we get to see one last exhortation about this is what it looks like. So this brings us to the, to the end of our short letter where we will address even more specifically, even more specifically than standing firm in the faith, we're going to address the question about what does it mean to stand firm in grace? What does it mean to stand firm in grace? And I think Peter will help us to explore that by unpacking both some obstacles to standing firm in grace, but also at the same time, a promise a promise that we have to look forward to. So the passage we're looking at this morning comes out of 1 Peter chapter 5. It's, uh, it's verses 6 through 14. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me and we'll read through the passage together. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. And I'll read. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is, in, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, pray that as we, as we hear your word this morning, Lord, that you would open our hearts, Father, that we might receive it. Lord, that your spirit would be at work in us, applying this text, this, your word, Father, to our lives, to our minds, to our hearts, so that we would be transformed. 
Father, we need you. We need to hear you speak to us. So please work powerfully during this time. I pray that you would be with me as I, as I proclaim your word, Father, that my words would be honoring to you, that my words would be a reflection only of your word, Father, and that your word would work powerfully. God, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So, again, in this passage, the, the first portion of the passage will talk primarily about what it means to, to stand in the faith. But let's begin with the last couple of verses, 12 through 14, and the final greetings that Peter gives. Um, so as we're going through it, we notice first, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. So here, Peter is commending Silvanus. Who is Silvanus? Silvanus is just another, na- it's just another way of, uh, of saying the name Silas. Silas, which if you're very familiar with the New Testament, that might actually sound like a very familiar name. And well, there's a good reason for it. This is likely the same Silas who is a co-missionary who has served alongside Paul in his many missionary ventures. And he's mentioned both in Acts and a number of other places in the New Testament. So by Silvanus. So what does it mean by by Silvanus? Well, it's likely that he was either a scribe which was very common in the ancient world. It was very common when, when they wrote letters. It's not like us, as we sit down to our computer today or, or potentially maybe even sit down with a pen today and write our own letters. It was very common in the ancient world to utilize a scribe who would write for you. We know of a number of other New Testament books where, uh, where, where the scribe is specifically mentioned. So it's likely that maybe he's serving as a scribe, or if not a scribe, at least the messenger himself who is going to take this message to these churches. So that's who Silvanus is. Now, where is the letter coming from? Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Now, Babylon, if you're familiar with your Old Testament history, is significant because Babylon had been the world power, the world power that opposed God and opposed his people. Now, at this point when Peter's writing, Babylon is no longer a world power, nor are they even around anymore. So it's likely it's not referring literally to Babylon here. It was not uncommon in the early church for Rome itself to be referred to as Babylon, because like Babylon of old, Rome has become the new persecutor of the church who stood against God and stood against his people. So it's likely here that Paul is referring, when he says Babylon, to Rome. And that's actually where Peter is writing from. Peter is writing, so, so she who is at Babylon, who sends her greetings to you, this is the church of Rome. The church of Rome is, is behind Peter as he's writing this letter and sending it out to these churches throughout Turkey. Um, along with Mark, my son, this would have been Mark, the, probably the gospel writer who's, uh, who, who wrote one of the gospels previously in the New Testament. He also has mentioned numerous times throughout, greet one another with a kiss of love. That's weird to us. Um, but even, even in a pre-COVID world, greeting one another with a holy kiss probably sounds pretty odd. Um, it was a very common practice in the first century world. In fact, it's, very, it's actually a very common practice around the rest of the world, even still today, to, uh, to greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. So that was not uncommon. I don't know too many American churches that advocate for greeting one another with a holy kiss. I, I think the best application is just 
make sure to greet one another and say hi and handshakes and whatever else is appropriate. The, the thing worth zooming in on, though, in these couple of verses in 12 through 14, is that, uh, is that Peter is exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Well, what's the true grace of God? Given that this is coming at the end of the letter, the this that we see there, that this is the true grace of God, it's probably referring back to the whole letter. The whole letter is supposed to, in some way, instruct the believers and empower the believers to stand firm in it, stand firm in the grace. The whole letter works to encourage and to exhort believers. But I I think it's especially true of this last section, that this last section especially encapsulates what it means to stand firm in this grace. So as we look at it, we get to see Peter spell out the implications then of standing firm in this grace. Um, Because it's so easy it's so easy for us to ignore the fundamental significance of grace and how much we need it. Grace, something that we haven't earned, but something that God has gifted to us. It's something that only comes from God. So as he spells this out, he's going to tell us what it means to fight to fight to stand firm, specifically in verses 6 through 9. And as he describes what it means to fight to stand firm in this grace, he'll identify two obstacles in particular that stand against us as we engage in this battle. So the first obstacle comes up in verses 6 through 7. Peter here cautions us that we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, now, humility is often misunderstood in our culture as though it's, it's self-abasement or self-hatred or, or thinking less of yourself. But pastor, um, pastor theologian Tim Keller, I think he helpfully describes it when he calls, he describes humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Thinking about yourself less. So it's, not, so it's not about self-abasement. It's not about putting yourself down. It's not about making less of yourself. Rather, it's about focusing less on yourself. Spending less, less time on you and more time thinking about, first and foremost, God, but then others as well. You see, we have this inherent desire as people to want to focus upon ourselves, to want everything to revolve around me. It's pride. Pride is the opposite of humility. And at the root, at the center of pride, is this self-absorbed fundamental desire for me, or quite literally for I. Pride, right? P-R-I-D-E, I. The very center of pride. It's all about me. So Peter calls us to fight against this navel-gazing that we're so prone to, and rather to put God and his sovereign hand first. And how exactly does Peter, how does Peter think that we should do this? How do we fight this pride that's so innate in us? How are we to pursue this humility? Well, honestly, the answer was a little bit surprising to me. Given the, the previous passage that we had looked at, I expected it would say something along the lines of, well, submit. So submit to those who are your leaders. Submit to those who are over you. I thought maybe it would say something like that. Or maybe even just think about other people more. That's kind of the direction that I would have expected it to go. 
But that's not what Peter says. Rather, in verse 7, he says that we should do this by casting all our anxieties on God. By casting all of our anxieties on Him. So, the pride that he's describing here, the pride that he's, the, that he's telling us that we need to fight against, is this pride of worry. It's this pride of worry and being gripped by fears, and being overwhelmed by the pressures that we seek to remedy. That's the pride that he's addressing here. It's a pride of independence. It's a pride of self-focusedness. It's a humility that we're called to display that lays these things down at the feet of Christ. Because fundamentally, if we're so focused and so worried and so concerned about all these things, we're not trusting in God. We're not trusting in God when we're consumed with worries and fears. Rather, we're focused on our own ability or even inability to resolve these issues. But either way, it comes back to a focus on me. It comes back to a focus on what I can do and what I can accomplish. When rather, he says, it's about him. And we need to be able to lay these things down at the feet of Christ. Why, verse 6? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. He delights for you to take these things. It's funny, it's so opposite to how we think. We, we feel like we need to impress. And we need to feel like we have it all under control. And we need to pretend like, uh, like there are no issues to take to him. But rather, what he delights in is to have these issues handed up to him. That's his joy because he cares for you. He cares for you. So many of us this morning, so many of us this morning are coming into this room, coming into the church, coming in to be with God's people, and we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed by the burdens of this world. We're, we're, we're feeling the pressure and the weight of it, the frustrations, the worries, and they squeeze us as we continue to feel those pressures build whether it's financial or health or politics or social or it's family-related or it's just other responsibilities, we feel the pressures of this build up to an overwhelming degree. It's like a Chinese finger trap where, where we feel the pressure and the tightness of it. And so we try to get out by pulling harder and harder, right? But the more we pull, sorry if I'm ruining any Chinese finger traps for you guys, uh, but the more we pull, the more pressure it is. Right? Everything in us says pull harder to try to get out of it. But that's the opposite that you want to do, right? What you need to do is you need to release. You need to release that pressure. You need to stop pulling and you need to return to the center. It's not that you're stopping from fighting. It's not that you're, it's not that you're no longer fighting. It's rather just a different type of fighting where you return to the center because he cares for you. And it's in him that you find final freedom. You take these concerns, you take these worries, and you take them to him and let him reframe your heart and your mind around what he desires. We should be a people who walk forward then in confident boldness because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king. He's over all of this. Because we have a higher priority and because we know the end. We know what we're working towards. We know what lies before us. And it's beautiful. And it's amazing. So we can walk forward with absolute confidence. 
He cares for you. And so we stand. But just like, just like I mentioned at the very beginning, right? Uh, the, the wedding party standing up front. As they're standing there, it's easy to fall when you lock out your knees. The pressure builds up. You don't get the blood flow that you need throughout the rest of your body. You end up losing consciousness. Sometimes we fall because of internal things like that. Other times, we fall due to external reasons. Other times, there's external things that weigh against us, that cause us to topple. And that's what Peter goes on to describe with his second obstacle in verses 8 to 9. Peter cautions believers that they are to be sober-minded and watchful. In other words, Peter is calling believers to be vigilant, to be aware. The opposite of this would be to be comfortable and to be lazy and to be negligent, and to feel like everything is okay, almost in a Pollyanna sort of way. Rather, he calls us to be battle-ready. He calls us to be battle-ready. With a wartime perspective, that you could be engaging with the enemy at any point in time. You never know. You never know when you'll be engaging with the enemy. So you have to be ready. So you keep your boots on. You keep your weapon at hand. You are ready because the enemy is just waiting to catch you napping. And how is this enemy? How is the devil described in this passage? I love it because it's so rich. He prowls around like a roaring lion ready to devour. Right? What a rich metaphor to describe how dangerous Satan really is. He's the ancient enemy that appears first in the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent, deceiving God's children. And since then, his methods really haven't changed that much. He continues to wage war against God and God's people. Now, regarding Satan, regarding the devil, I find that there are two traps that I think people are often prone to. I think there's at least two traps that people are prone to. The first one is to be devil ignorers. Devil ignorers. I find, the, I find that devil ignorers tend to be blissfully unaware of Satan and his demons who are waging war against them. For these Christians, troubles come into their life because of the result of physical material causes because of the physical material world and and then consequently the way to deal with those troubles is through physical material means right either we just need to exercise more we need to eat better or we need to do these things or we need to have more money or we need to have more education or we need to if i can just fix this thing and those are the things that we go to first just physical material things So that, at the end of the day, there is very little reason to even consider that Satan might be behind this. Some in this category might go so far as to say that Satan himself doesn't even exist. In fact, in in one recent Barna poll, he noted that those who proclaim themselves to be Christian, 40% don't believe in the existence of Satan. And we're not talking. We're not talking about the secular world. These are those who actually confess to be Christians. They don't believe in Satan. Devil ignorers, whether they believe in Satan or not, largely function as though he doesn't exist and has zero impact on their lives. But this is at odds with the biblical description that he's there, and that we need to be vigilant. We need to be aware. 
Such a perspective, being devil ignores, leaves you exposed to his attacks, leaves you exposed to his temptations, leaves you exposed to the things that he's trying to bring into your life. As one French poet wrote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The second trap that I find many fall into is to be devil blamers. To be devil blamers. This camp are those who blame everything on Satan. If anything goes wrong, it's always, well, it must be Satan who did this. It must be Satan who's at work. If they're struggling with a sin, well, it's probably the devil. The, the devil is the one who's doing this. It's his fault that I'm struggling with this sin now. Such a position then falls into two errors. When, when you begin to blame everything on Satan, it, first of all, makes him far more powerful than he really is. It begins to turn him into someone who is all-knowing and all-powerful. It begins to ascribe to him the things that we describe God as. God is the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful. It's not Satan. Satan isn't everywhere. He's not, he, he's not all-present all the time. There is a good chance that Satan has no idea who you or I are. He is not all-knowing. Now, I don't want to diminish him too much. Scripture doesn't tell us too much about how powerful he actually is, but we do know that he is certainly not God. Right? He does have charge over demons. He does have charge over an entire army that works to tempt believers. But we can't blame everything on him. The second thing that it falls into is it falls into the same trap as Eve. When God approaches her about her sin, what does she do? She points to Satan. It was his fault. It was the serpent's fault. He's the one who made me do it. It's very easy to fall into that trap where all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everything's about him. And we never actually stop to address the problem of our own heart and our own flesh that continues to wage war within us. As we've worked our way through 1 Peter, we've gotten to see spiritual warfare over and over again. And yet, this is the first time Satan is mentioned in the book. Because the biggest enemy in spiritual warfare isn't him. The biggest, war, the biggest enemy in spiritual warfare is me. And it's my sin that's at work in me. We are culpable for our sins. At the end of the day, it's not his fault. It's my fault. Again, none of that takes away the reality that we need to be on guard against him, though. Christians, we are called to engage in spiritual warfare, recognizing that the devil and his demons do exist in this world. And they do want to turn you from Christ. They will bring temptations into your life. They will seek to distract you from him. They, will, they might even bring hardships into your life. We certainly see an example of this in Job, right, where, where Satan brings hardships into Job's life. Anything to keep you ultimately from depending on God and the Spirit who is at work in you. And we must recognize at the same time that Satan is not all-powerful. He is not only a, he is only a, he is a, he is a tempter, yes, but at the same time he is completely under sovereign's, mighty, God's sovereign mighty thumb. He is under God's thumb. unable to do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. God is in control. Satan is not. Satan is on God's leash. 
Again, just like we see in in the book of Job, Satan has to go to God to ask permission to bring temptations, to bring trials, to bring hardships into Job's life. He He has to seek permission from God. So a majority of our spiritual battle then is really with yourself and your flesh because you really are that sinful. And we cannot be aware of Satan's, of Satan and his schemes. So we fight to stand firm in the midst of the obstacles of both sin and Satan. How then? How then do we stand firm? I mean, have you seen the description that was just given of Satan? How are we supposed to stand firm in the midst of this? Satan is a lion, a lion skulking about, roaring, waiting to devour us. I, I don't know about you, but I have not fought too many lions in my life. That sounds like a scary thing. A cat. I, I, I did fight a cat one time, but I'll say that story for another day. But, but definitely not a lion. What does that even look like? How are we called to stand firm in the midst of this? How can we do it? Well, Peter provides us with an answer through a promise in verses 10 through 11 provides us with a, with a description of it, verses 10 through 11. And after you have suffered a little while, so after the lion has toyed with us, after, after we've been beaten up through trials and hardships, after we've faced um, um, temptations and sins and struggles, after, after we've gone through this, at the, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter gives us a promise here. Do you see? Do you see the promise in this passage? That we Christians are called to God's eternal glory. We're called to God's eternal glory. This is the same future hope that we've seen so many times throughout the book of 1 Peter. Even just previously in our passage back in verse 6 where he promises that at the proper time God will exalt you. Or back in chapter 1 verse 4 where he describes our inheritance. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. A glory that is beyond all comparison, that causes the trials and the hardships of this world to blush in comparison because they can't possibly stand up to the amazing future that we look forward to. A future that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 14, describing his his current struggles and trials. He says this, he says, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison beyond all concern there's nothing that compares not even your greatest imagination not even the greatest thoughts you've ever had so not just the trials but even the greatest thing you can possibly imagine the greatest experiences of this life the greatest your imagination can go with it the greatest poetry the greatest movie the greatest whatever none of it none of it can pale in comparison with the future that we have to look forward to, a future eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Something that's so glorious and so beautiful that we see Peter eventually willing to die for it, being willing to go to a cross himself because he knows the future glory that he has to look forward to. A future glory that's so significant that Paul, 
is willing to go to his death eventually. Because the future that he's about to enjoy is so much greater than anything in this world. Biblical author after biblical author, apostle after apostle, we see these individuals willing to give up their lives because of this eternal weight of glory. This isn't some boring, humdrum future mediocrity of milk toast that we have to look forward to. This is greater than anything else that we can possibly imagine. That's the promise that we have. That's that's the promise that we look forward to. Well, how, how do we get there? How do we get to enjoy such a promise that's so great? Well, it's by working really hard now, right? I, I, just, I just have to bear up. I have to, I have to resist Satan. I have to fight my pride. I have to do this. I have to do that. No, that's not what our passage says. We get there by God. By God. Or as Peter calls him, the God of all grace. Why does he call him the God of all grace here? Because he's the God who deals graciously with us. And Peter here is unfolding what that grace looks like for us. Because you see, grace is what we're so desperate for. Because without grace, there is no standing firm. Because when you see grace, you know that your standing isn't really standing. Because it's not about you. It's about him and his gift and the work that he is accomplishing in you. At the end of the day, you're not standing. You're being held up. You are being held up by him. You cannot defeat the obstacles of your sin and Satan by standing firm with your chin out and your brow furrowed and your teeth clenched. That's not how we do it. We don't stand because we're strong. We don't do better because, because we, we just need to work out more and run more and get our legs stronger. And once we get to that point, then we can stand. No, it's not by any of those things. It's by God's glorious, unmerited, freely given, radiantly beautiful grace. It's because of Him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 Paul describes it this way, but he said to me, this is Christ who's speaking, but Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. That flies in the face of what we want to say. We want to say, therefore, I will boast in my strength because I'm so great, because I'm so strong, because I'm so mighty. But that's not, that's not what he says. I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for, and I love the way Paul finishes this, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. This is, this is the work of God in us. And he describes it with a, with a series of verbs here in our passage. God restores us. He confirms us. He strengthens. He establishes us. These verbs all pointing to the same general concept that God will finish what he has started in you. 
Paul put it this way, the God who began, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's from Philippians 1.6. Or Paul describes it similarly in Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those who he began working in, he also finishes working in. He doesn't lose any in the middle of that process. He is the one who is working. How, how do these realities stand together? How do these things come together? Christians, you are called to fight, to stand firm in grace by waging war on our sin, by waging war against Satan. Yes, we are called to fight. We are called to all of these things, to be proactive in our defenses against him. We are called to attack, but we also hold on to the reality and the understanding that we can't do it. It's only God who is able to make these things happen. It's only him. He's the one who who strengthens and who establishes us and who finishes the work in us. He's the one who does it. He's the one who makes all of these realities possible. That's what I love about this passage in First in First Peter chapter five that we began with. First Peter chapter five verse twelve, where it says that we are to stand firm in grace. I love it because it holds both of these realities together. That we are called to stand firm and to fight and to strive and to do everything within our power, and yet it's in God's grace, meaning you can't do it. Both of these realities are held together in this singular statement. John Bunyan, um, sorry, I'm in Minnesota, so I feel like I have to make sure everyone hears that I didn't say Paul Bunyan. He's different. John Bunyan, Christian author, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Um, as, far, as far as I'm aware, outside of Scripture, it sold more copies than any other book ever written. Right, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a, it's a story about the Christian life. It's an allegory. Um, so, so that as you see this story unfold, you see all of these truths that he's packed into it about what it means to live the Christian life. I highly recommend it. Um, so, so there's this amazing scene in, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, the main character, right? Not, not terribly creative. Um, but, uh, but, but Christian, the main character, he comes, he comes to this guide. He comes to this helper named Interpreter. Um, and an interpreter points out this fire that's, that's against the wall. And standing next to this fire, standing next to this fire is an individual who is pouring water, just continually pouring water into this fire. So you would think the fire would go out. But in reality, what Christian sees is whenever water goes in, the flame goes up higher. The, the flame actually continues to grow and to get brighter and to get hotter with every pour. Christian looks at interpreter and says, interpreter, how, how is this possible? How, why is this happening? So interpreter takes Christian by the hand and he walks him to the wall because the fire is against the wall and then takes him around to the other side, to the side that he couldn't see. And what he sees on the other side is that there's another individual with oil continually pouring oil into the fire. And as many of you will know, if you add water to, uh, to, to, to an oil fire, it just it goes up, even the brighter, even all the more. And so he's continually doing it. So, 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 no matter, so no matter what the person with water is doing on the other side, he can't 
put the flame out. There is, there is, he has no ability to make this happen. This is like the Christian life and the perseverance that's displayed. It would be easy, to, especially because we're standing on this side of the wall, right? It would be easy to see that flame and to think, wow, that person, they're really impressive. Look at their strength. Look at the flame. Look how it continues to get brighter despite what happens to them. It would be easy to think in this life that it's because of them and because of their fire. But then you walk around and you see the unseen side and you realize it was never about them. It was about him pouring that oil into that fire over and over again. This is the work of God in our lives. How does God do it? How does he dispense this oil into our lives? He does it, verse 10, in Christ. In Christ. We trust in Christ. He came. He lived. He lived the perfect life, the perfect spotless life. He did all the things that we were unwilling and unable to do. He stood. He is the one who stood perfectly when we would not and could not. He stood perfectly, and then he took the penalty for our inability to stand. Not only did he do it perfectly, but then he took that penalty from us. What we deserved, what we had earned, what we had merited by our failures over and over and over again. And he took them upon himself and traded. He took our sins and our, and our struggles and our failures, and he gave us his righteous robe his righteous scarlet robe, and he stood us up. And he continues to stand us up. And with the Spirit who is at work in us, he props us up, secure, standing, stilted up by he who dwells in us. The one who is a down payment, a guarantee of this future that we continue to long for, of this future that we continue to look forward to, that we will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, established, and exalted to eternal glory, eternal glory on that day. And we continue to look forward to that reality. John 10, 26, Jesus cried, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one, no one will snatch them from my hand. No one. Now, as we look at the reality of perseverance this morning, and of the way that God continues to work and to make these beautiful promises, these beautiful, rich promises to us, I imagine that there are a number of people who are struggling in different, with different realities this morning, struggling in different places. And I imagine there's a fair amount of overlap, but I just want to briefly address them. There are some here this morning who feel quite confident in their faith, maybe even, maybe even overconfident, maybe even overconfident. My, my encouragement to you is to take the exhortations of Peter seriously. Take the realities of these obstacles seriously. Don't be so self-confident that you fall into spiritual lethargy, that you fall into laziness. Your enemy is here. Your enemy is here, whether, whether it's your flesh or whether it's Satan. There is a roaring lion that is waiting to devour you. So put on your, put on your fatigues. 
Have your boots ready. Have your weapon ready because you are in a battle, whether you know it or not. Whether you choose to acknowledge it or not, there is a battle that is going going on around you. There are bullets whizzing past your head every day. Don't ignore this reality. Are you ready to engage in that battle? There are some here this morning who are struggling, who don't feel confident, who don't feel confident about their standing in grace. My encouragement to you is to take the exhortations of Peter seriously and fight. Fight. Fight with all the blood-bought grace that we have in Christ. Put your concerns to God. Take your worries, take your trials, take your struggles, take your concerns. Take them all to Christ and fight the good fight. Find brothers and sisters who are willing to come alongside you and willing to petition at the throne of glory with you. Who are willing to encourage you, who are willing to lift you up and continue to fight. You are not alone. You are not alone. God is with you and God has given you a people. A people, these people who are here to fight alongside you. So continue the good fight. And there are some here this morning who are wrestling over loved ones, over friends, over family, over spouses, over children that maybe they have seen depart from the faith, who have deconverted, so to speak. And you're plagued with all kinds of questions. And many questions that, I mean, to be honest, we can't really answer all of them, right? We can't. But there is, there is something we do know for sure. There is something that God has made crystal clear. That we are to continue to labor alongside those. We are to continue to fight for those that we have seen walk away from the faith. We are to continue to bring these worries and these concerns and these loved ones to the feet of Christ. And to continue to pray for them, continue to love them, continue to share with them, continue to fight for them. Don't grow weary. Don't grow overwhelmed. Don't, don't, don't stop. We just have no idea what God is going to do and when he is going to do it. So keep praying Keep loving. Keep casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. We are called then to fight the good fight. We are called to fight, to stand in grace. In grace. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this morning, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the beautiful... Thank you for the beautiful promises that you have given us, Lord, that we can be confident that you are at work. You are at work, and you are going to do mighty things that are beyond all comparison. Father, you are glorious, and we continue to confess the greatest promises, the most amazing things that we can possibly imagine. They all pale in comparison with being in your presence. So, Father, we continue to long for that day. Please continue to work. Please continue to come alongside the weak and the weary and give strength that can only come through your Spirit. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.
Our benediction this morning comes out of Jude, verses 24 and 25. For those of you who are struggling, who would like to pray with someone this morning, we will have elders up front after the service, so please, please be sure to seek them out. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a good day. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.